Hello and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. My name is James. And I'm CJ, and this is the only podcast where we're shaking our booties. (laughs) (sighs) And we're off to the races already on this one. How have you been this week? (laughs) I've been really uh, better. I have been much better um, getting used to this life that we're now in. Yeah, how about you? Oh, you know, getting it done, living my truth, basically just doing the exact same thing as I did last week. It's all very exciting in lockdown. Exactly. I'm finding new ways to amuse myself. For instance, I'm going a different route on my walk every morning. Okay. Okay. That's uh, that's exciting. Yeah. You can tell by the tone of my voice, it's not that exciting. (laughs) No. No. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We are both woken up very early on this Saturday morning to record, um, but we are titillating with excitement to discuss the two-part Doctor Who story, Aliens of London, World War Three. Excitement is a strong word. If I wasn't already upset at having to be up this early, I also just rewatched both of these episodes and uh, it was not the best way to start off my Saturday morning. I'll say that much. Yeah, strap yourselves in, guys. We're, we're going to have a roller coaster episode this week, I think. But before we get to that, uh, as always, we're going to cover any recent Doctor Who news that's been happening. So CJ, why don't you dive into a companion story for The Girl in the Fireplace? Yeah, so the obviously the, the Doctor Who lockdown rewatches are still going on and they recently um, did The Girl in the Fireplace. And there was an interesting, every sort of rewatch that the, the show's creator at that time or the writer has been releasing new content that sort of surrounds the story that it was written in. And this week there was a addendum to The Girl in the Fireplace played by Sophia Miles, the original actress from the episode. And it's quite good. It's, if you're a fan of the episode, just give it a listen. It doesn't add too much to your understanding of that episode, but it is a sweet little addendum. So Stephen Moffat has written this little sequel addendum thing, but it was originally a Russell T Davies story. Is that? Well, it was produced under Russell T Davies's time, but it is a Stephen Moffat episode. Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I always thought that the girl in the fireplace was a Matt Smith era episode for some reason. Oh no. Um, and- Oh, yeah, no, now that I'm looking at the news story, I realise how wrong I am. So looking forward to covering that one next season. Is it that? is next season. Yeah, we're so close to it, really. I don't want to go too far into The Girl in the Fireplace. That's that's all that to come. But we're actually on a bit of a Russell T. Stephen Moffat train with the Doctor Who news this week because the other news story that I saw pop up was a revelation, if you dare to term it that, that from the Series 4 two-parter, Silence in the Library, Forest of the Dead, which was written by Stephen Moffat, there was a hidden doctor. Did you see this, James? I am just seeing it now. <laughs> Catching up on all my Doctor Who news on a Saturday morning, as you do. <laughs> Colin Salmon as Doctor Moon is yeah. apparently this hidden doctor. Yeah, so Stephen Moffat's sort of always, his theory was that the doctor at the very end of his life would insert himself into the library to be with River forever. It's it's his headcanon. It's not official. But if you choose to take it like that, then yeah, there is an extra Doctor in that episode. And it's Doctor Doctor Moon. Interesting. Yeah. My only knowledge of Colin Salmon is from the exceptional Resident Evil films, which I wish we were talking about this morning, but alas. Oh dear. No, we're not. We're not talking about Resident Evil. Not now, nor ever, I believe. The unfortunate downside of this, obviously, is that yet again, we've had a retconned black doctor in the show. I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, Look, I mean, having it show up as just like a headcanon thing is, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this is really nice, but I would never consider it to be actual representation. 
That's it. Uh, that, and that's pretty much all it ever comes down to is that like, unless you're going to actively explore these stories with a more diverse cast in the show itself, I don't really care what personal fan fiction is outside of the show, even if you did write the show. That's it. Yeah. It's, it doesn't add anything to the narrative. It doesn't add anything to the show. It's purely Steve Moffat's headcanon. So, but moving right along, we're going to jump into both episodes, Aliens of London and World War Three, because this week we wanted to cover both of them so that we could sort of really knuckle down on, on what's going on with this um, divisive two-parter, let's say. Me. So without further ado, let us dive right in. Big Ben destroyed as a UFO crash lands in central London. What is it then? Are they invading? Only way to invade, putting the world on red alert. By God, I'll put this country under martial law if I have to. Defense Pan Delta, come on! Aliens of London and World War Three were respectively the fourth and fifth episodes of the first season of the Doctor Who revival, airing on the 16th of April and the 23rd of April, 2005. Both were directed by Keith Boat and written by Russell T. Davies. Russell T. Davies' first um, two-parter and also the first two-parter of this show, which means the first cliffhanger, really. Yes, it does. It does, which is very exciting. Uh, this also means, though, that we have two plots to cram into one here, uh, into our little description. But before we do that, as always, we're checking in with IMDb. So for Aliens of London, the Doctor returns Rose to her own time. Well, sort of. But her family reunion is ruined when a spaceship crashes in the middle of London. What is the origin of the spaceship and where has the Prime Minister gone in this time of crisis? I'm not terrible. Yeah, I like that somebody wrote well sort of in there. <laughs> like, yeah, that's that's quite a charming little um, flourish. I appreciate that. <laughs> and for World War Three, according to IMDb, the Slovene have infiltrated Parliament and have the Doctor and his friends trapped as the Doctor works to prevent them from starting World War Three. Concise. It's clean. It is concise and clean. I always forget that episode two is called World War Three and that the plot is revolves around trying to start World War Three. Because we never actually see any world war. No, we don't. I'd also argue that the episode isn't sure whether it wants to take the premise of World War Three seriously or not. Mm. But that is something that we'll get to shortly. But uh, as we know, IMDb probably don't cover everything that they should. So to catch anybody up who's listening to this, here is as concise a plot synopsis as I can manage for these two episodes. All right, so the Doctor returns Rose to Earth 12 hours after she left. However, he realises too late that they've actually come back 12 months later. A distraught Jackie, Rose's mother, struggles to accept where her daughter has been this whole time. While in the sky, planet Earth witnesses its first alien encounter as a spaceship crashes into Big Ben and lands in the Thames. Meanwhile, in number 10 Downing Street, the Prime Minister has gone missing, leaving some very odd farting people in charge. Leaving Rose at, with her mum and Mickey, the Doctor investigates and discovers the spaceship landing was rigged to look like a genuine crash. The aliens, however, whoever they are, rather, have been here a lot longer. The first episode culminates in the Doctor and Rose being called into Downing Street, where the world's alien experts have been called to a summit. The true masterminds are revealed to be the Slovene, a family of, here we go, Raxacoricophopolitarians. Oh, can I jump in just quickly? Sure. Raxacorico Fallopatorians. There you go. 
Weird flex, but okay. Who disguise themselves in the skins of dead humans. Their plan isn't domination, but rather to trigger a global nuclear war that will decimate the planet and leave them to sell the radioactive waste to the highest bidder. The Doctor, Rose, and Harriet Jones, MP for Flydale North, lock themselves in the cabinet room and with the help of Mickey, launch a missile strike on 10 Downing Street before the Slovene can start World War Three. Rose, though encouraged by her mum not to go, departs with the Doctor again in the TARDIS, making their partnership ship official hmm sweet and also very concise well done james thank you it's almost as if somebody wrote that for me yes i I didn't think you would use the whole thing but you did and i'm really proud of my writing there well look it it just comes down to there's simultaneously a lot and nothing going on in these episodes (laughs) and i did not trust myself to just ad-lib my way through that much plot so no it's a lot of action um substance i will say but yeah the a lot of waiting around really in that second episode. Yes. And uh, I think it's interesting uh, that plot description that you've written up there, there are so many points where you just want to pull it apart already because there's Mm -hmm. so much going on. There is absolutely. And we will get to that in our discussion. The, uh, there are a couple of other points I just want to bring up before we do jump into the episode properly though. That is that this, and I only learned this this morning when I was doing a little bit of research, uh, and it's, I think, interesting. The, this is the very, very last episode, last couple of episodes, I should say, to have scenes filmed in the television centre in London, which for classic aficionados, that was where the majority of uh, Doctor Who was filmed in its original run. But uh, in the modern revival, it's filmed almost exclusively in production studios in Cardiff. Um, so I didn't know that this was literally the very last episode to be filmed it proper in London, in television centre. Oh, I mean, that's that's a bit sweet, isn't it? I think it's fitting as well for a story um, which is in some way shaking off the past and jetting off the new adventures properly. We spoke about this before, before we started recording, that this is a real jumping off point for the rest of the series. You know, you have the time jump at the very start of the episode, which ca- catapults us into the future. The Doctor and Rose are now an official partnership. She packs her bag and she jumps in the TARDIS for real. It can only go up from here. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It is, it's definitely a jumping off point. It, it marks the first time that we see certain maybe excesses of the show uh, and certainly uh, the grander scale that it's perhaps looking at in terms of restructuring and recontextualizing um, old school narratives such as like the invasion story and whatnot. Yeah. But we are getting ahead of ourselves in a general sense first. Let's start off with what did you, like how do you feel about these two episodes? I am in two minds. I remember we were sitting down to watch this and I was full of positivity because these are probably two episodes that I haven't really engaged with since they like first went out in 2005. And I've always had like a the deep kind of love, misguided maybe for the Slovene. So I was I was keen to watch it, but then I think after coming out of it and after we discussed it previously, and there are lots of flaws which I can't ignore anymore. I think the tone of this episode, these are two episodes, is fun. I it is a fun ride, and taken purely as that on a surface level, then I can ignore I can ignore some of the problems. But then if I think about it for two seconds in any kind of critical fashion, it kind of falls apart and I hate that I hate that I had that reaction because I do like I said before this is my favorite doctor companion pairing this is my favorite like one of my favorite iterations of the show it has I've a lot of nostalgia for it so having this negative reaction is really quite devastating in a way what did you think well look I mean I say it's been pretty obvious from my tone about these episodes from the beginning of this episode already but I did not 
love this experience of, of watching these two. When I was, like, when these first aired, I was 14, and so I had a, like, a blast with them, you know? I thought that the farting was funny, I thought the, the suits looked really cool, like, I liked the zipper heads and everything. There was a lot going on in there that I, I quite uh, resonated with as a teenager, and it's interesting now that I'm coming back to it as an adult, I can definitely... Now I can't help but view this as, yeah, this is a teenager's idea of what a big Doctor Who story would be, uh, fart jokes and all. And it's the first time that we've we've been doing this rewatch where the wheels kind of completely fell off for me. It wasn't so much a, oh, this is average Doctor Who. It was a, I don't want to watch this episode of Doctor Who anymore. And, and that was just a really disappointing wall to slam into because mm. like we obviously had our criticisms of uh the unquiet dead but in in comparison now i i very much miss what what gatus was doing with that episode given that this is what we sort of spin into next and that it is a shame isn't it because the ideas that are i think the ideas that are present in this episode are interesting and engaging and thoughtful and it is i i gotta say like the political dimension to this episode is something i really appreciate when doctor who does it's just a shame then that it's then matched with, like you say, farting aliens and <laughs> a kind of, uh, I don't know, like the humour just really falls flat and doesn't mix with the political dimension of this episode, with the emotional dimension of this episode. It it, it does at times feel like you've got all these scenes with Slovene and then all these scenes with Mickey and Jackie and, her, and the the emotional dimension with the family drama and then you've got the overarching alien invasion plot and all of those like a good scriptwriter would find a way to make those elements or meld into one to mirror not mirror so much but to comment on and complement each other but they are just like separate story strands that mix mm. at one crucial point but other than that, are quite separate. Yeah, I, I, and I do think that's uh, why I struggled the most with this, uh, because if, if you sort of break down the episodes uh, into their component parts, you've got like a bulk of, of really serious, like sometimes dark, but not always dark. Like I think we, in, in typical media criticism, we tend to maybe overpraise the idea that things have to be dark to be taken seriously, and I don't think that's necessarily the truth. But with what this episode is doing, the way that it frames Rose's time away from her family is exceptionally dark, if you consider the um, ramifications for Mickey and for Jackie. And then the, you've got the alien crash landing, which is simultaneously framed through very serious dry news reports, which makes it feel exceptionally real to me. Like there was a, when they were watching it in the London flat together, I felt, uh, I was, I guess I should say for the first 20 minutes of Aliens of London, I was in love with it. I, I thought it was really exceptional because it was tackling both personal character drama as well as plot drama in a nice even-handed way that was treating both of them with the seriousness that, the, that they, they both deserve. Mm. And then things take a very harsh turn. Isn't it funny? Yeah, because I felt the same way. And the, the you bring up the alien invasion and how um, dry it is. It's also incredibly boring. Like you say, you're watching it through the news uh, reports, but also there's that party you see on the balcony and they're all just like, you know, there's the banners that say, you know, hello, E.T. and, and you know, welcome to Earth and all this stuff. And it just, it, it's a very... I don't want to say pessimistic view of first contact, but it isn't, it isn't wondrous. No, there's a strange amount of, I don't want to say cruelty in the episode because I don't, I don't think it's necessarily cruelty, but there is a, a very harsh light cast on 
specifically the working class that I find mm-hmm. to be an interesting element to this in that uh, the way that Russell T. Davies has written this sort of first contact scenario, uh, you've got the doctor who himself is an alien is the only one taking the news report seriously. And meanwhile, we've got these kind of caricatures of working class people in the background being like, oh, guess who asked me out? Or I've got to get my nails done mm-hmm. or whatever it is. I think there is a, a strange bit of characterization going on there because I never got the impression that the show thought less of these people in Rose's life, but through both Rose's characterization herself in this episode and the way the episode treats them, I'm starting to get the impression that we really aren't meant to be emotionally connecting with the working class people around Rose. And I think that that is a huge misfire in this episode because it does rely on them so much for the plot that if you can't, if you, if you're not allowed to have a genuine connection with them outside of either laughing at them or laughing with them, it's it just emotionally stunts an episode that is dealing with quite emotionally mature concepts. Um, I think you bring up a very interesting point because I, I couldn't help but think of uh, this the start to end of the world, right? Mm. Where you have the Doctor say that speech, that really lovely speech about the hope of humanity. None of that yeah. is present here. And the working class it's really people, not. it's not, yeah. And the working class people that are depicted here, you've got Jackie and Rose, Mickey and the people on the estate that they live on are not given a chance to think about any that they're not given the respect of thinking about this in any way other than anger or distress or suspicion. And maybe that's yeah. true. And maybe that is how things really are. And in terms of like the realism of this episode, I can't fault it really, but it just doesn't mix compat. It's not compatible with the Doctor Who ethos that has been established by the like previous episodes we watched. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and it, cause you get moments like, like you said, with the, um, the party going on on the balcony and the banner that says, you know, like welcome to earth or whatever, or the aliens have arrived. And yeah. I think that is really accurate. Like I could, I could see people that I know personally in my life on the day of an alien ship crash landing, getting drunk and having a party about it. Because I think excitement is a, a very valid reaction to that sort of thing happening. And I thought that was quite real. It, it's just that the rest of it is is oddly pessimistic about the way that these people would be reacting to such a situation. And when you pair that with Rose's characterization in this episode, which I think we should probably get into now, mm. there is a there's just a strange lack of consideration for the feelings of every other character in the show except for Rose and the Doctor at this point. Um, and coming off of two episodes that were explicitly empathetic and very interested in the perspectives of the other uh, people or creatures around them, it's very jarring. It is very jarring. I will say in... RTD's defense, though, he is kind of making history by, you know, just acknowledging that Rose has a family to begin with. Not saying that it's entirely successful, but, you know, props where props due, it's, it is refreshing. Yeah. And it's interesting because in that first, what, like five minutes where she comes up the stairs and she goes into the apartment and Jackie sees her again for the first time in, in what we learn is 12 months, there is that seriousness given to the situation. Jackie's emotional state is taken into consideration beyond just screaming. And it's it's really beautiful and really well done. And there's like a genuine sense of like tension as the doctor's running up the stairs and, and the music is swelling and it's all it's all good. And the, the tone is locked into place uh, with the characters in a really nice way. It's just that it doesn't maintain any 
any of that throughout the episode. Jackie becomes more and more of a of a kind of caricature screaming foil to what's going on in Rose's life. Um, and the same thing happens with Mickey as well. It's yeah, it's just strange. <laughs> it's strange. And it's hard not to think about where these characters are going because they do get better and they do get real emotional depth in future episodes. But as a jumping off point for them, it isn't. It's not the best of starts. It's a bit of a false start, really. Um, but yes, let's get into Rose. Um, and I have one simple question. Why are Rose and Mickey together? Well, mm, that's kind of it, isn't it? Um, I don't... They don't... I mean, look, personally, I don't think the actors have a huge amount of chemistry. The characters aren't written to have chemistry. Rose is specifically written in this episode to be extremely disinterested in her Earth life. Mm. I... And Mickey, especially when you consider what Mickey had to go through while Rose was missing for those 12 months. And this is one of those things that in an episode with, you know, farting aliens, it's strange to pair that with scenes where Mickey is talking about being questioned by police because everyone suspects the boyfriend, uh, the fact that he was ostracized from the dating community and from his little um, housing community because... Uh, Jackie was spreading that he was somehow involved in the disappearance of Rose. It doesn't even explicitly touch on the race element of that, but you know that that is 100% going on there. Yeah. And so to to have all of those elements in this episode and have them not be uh, a focus of Rose and Mickey's relationship, because that stuff is kind of hand-waved away after a couple of scenes, I don't know why they're together. I don't know why they're together. In my notes, I sort of made the point that maybe it's just a relationship of convenience they're both on the estate they're both young why wouldn't they i mean how many well i mean i was about to say how many relationships did you have in high school but i was like no way i was gay i didn't have any relationships in high school um, <laughs> ditto twofold kelma <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're laughing about our trauma it's all funny um <laughs> but i can imagine that their relationship was just you're there i'm there let's let's do this thing i mean you see it in that first episode right it takes not a lot for rose to want to run away it's just it's just that mickey doesn't deserve to be treated the way that he is but the episode seems intent on making it out like he does. Yeah. And that's because the episode is uh, gunning really hard for a version of Rose where her selfishness and her Im- impulsiveness is framed as, as very good things for her character because it's part of in, it's interesting because in this episode, um, unlike the previous two, I very much felt that Rose was a 19 year old girl. Um, you know, mm. she, she says dumb things like she, she calls, she says to the doctor, oh, you're so gay when he complains about his face hurting. Um, she's impulsive. She, she genuinely doesn't seem to give much consideration to the emotional states of the people around her. And that is very much a, a late teenage years um, mindset. And so I think that's quite genuine and well-written and really well-performed. I buy into all of that. And this ties into my point that I, I had last week about Rose in the unquiet dead is that in these moments I buy into what they need Rose to be. But if you look at the overarching picture, I just don't see much uh, cohesiveness because the Rose that we saw over the past two episodes is a much more mature and explicitly treated as a much more mature character by the script that this is out of harmony. I tried to rationalize that by saying that maybe when Rose is in the TARDIS and she's away from her family and the life that she has known, those mature elements, which, you know, are there and, and 19 year olds are mature, even, yeah, <laughs> um, maybe <laughs> comes to the front more so. That's me hand waving it away, not going off what's actually in the script. 
Yeah, that's it. I think that's a really good read on the situation. And I think the subtext of her character is definitely that. It's just the show itself doesn't, and it doesn't need to hold your hand to get you to any of these conclusions, but it would be good if there, it, it, there was no self-awareness in the script about any of those elements. And I think that that is, I mean, definitely in part because while we were researching this episode, we found out that these two were filmed before the end of the world and um, the unquiet dead. And so because they are done out of order, you can almost feel an uncertainty about what they need Rose to be as a character. You're, you're absolutely right. And that, that spreads out to the entirety of these episodes. It's not just Rose. It's the way that, you know, Mickey and Jackie are depicted. It's the way that the threat is depicted. It's this, that same tonal dissonance is the same as what we saw in Rose. It, it's just, I can't help but be disappointed by it, is, is all I'm saying. And I know that that's, yeah. you know, it, it's not a very productive place to start a, a, a podcast conversation with, but I'd be lying if I didn't feel... Like, if you had put these two episodes immediately after, uh, even after the end of the world, I probably could have swallowed it a little bit easier. But putting them after two episodes where she's gone away and turned into the woman that they need her to be for the the later plot stuff to happen, um, to to then go back to... And, it, and you're right, it isn't just Rose. It's also the Doctor in this episode is a completely different Doctor from the past two episodes. He is... He's more of a traditional figure. Like, he's he's excited. He's running around. It's an adventure. And it, it just... The whole thing smacks to me of a show that, because it was made out of order, nobody seemed to really keep in mind that characterization needed to line up with where they would be. And I don't get the impression, other than that one throwaway line of, you know, oh, that I've seen the end of the world or, or five billion years into the future, that these two characters have been on the journeys that we've just seen them on. Yeah, these, these episodes aren't concerned with what's come before. It is, to my mind, more concerned with shaping the political dimension of the show and the wider earth narrative, shall we say? Because this is, yeah. I think, I think you know, you have the Auton invasion in the first episode and the, the blowing up of Henrik's, the department store, but that was slight and is really never commented on again. Whereas this is where humanity's interaction with aliens starts proper. Well, I mean, yes and no. Like by the end of the episode, they completely walk it back somehow mm, they do they do and i i was annoyed with that at first and then as i was thinking about it i was like well all that all that the planet really saw was the ship land in the thames destroy big ben and downing street blow up but everything that happened behind the walls of downing street all the behind the scenes things nobody saw wasn't reported on properly it's interesting it is interesting that they are able to walk it back i think it's plausible yeah i don't know i'm actually yeah yeah look i i'd buy that it's plausible but and and this is more of a structural problem in these two episodes is that because they don't give time to the things that need time to be explained or explored, it just feels very rushed. Like the the ending of World War Three is so I'm I'm not even I'm not I'm not quite sure how to describe the ending of World War Three because the moment that like the they step out of that box after they blew up the main government building in the middle of London <laughs> and it's just like oh it's fine don't worry about it we have to get to an, an admittedly really fantastic scene with Rose and her family at the end but the rush to get back to the character stuff means that they never tie up any loose ends to do with the main plot of the episode yeah. and it's just left kind of hanging and feeling a bit awkward and and strange. It is a very, this is a very classic kind of ending for Doctor Who, really, because you have the main threat resolved with a bang, essentially, and the emotional fallout, whatever that may be, well, not even the emotional fallout, but just the fallout is not addressed. This is not uncommon at Doctor Who. This is very much actually written into the show's 
sort of characterization of the doctor that he doesn't stick around after the threat is neutralized. He doesn't pick up the pieces. That's what that whole point of that ending really is, 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 you know, the doctor saying to Rose, you can either have, um, you can either have this relationship with your mum, you can either ha- be here on earth or you can drop it all and forget about it and come out into space with me. It's not very sympathetic, but that is in keeping with his character. It's not even on that level that I don't vibe with it. It's just, it's purely from a basic storytelling point of view that I think that this episode stumbles with its ending. Uh, because, the, you know, the character, like I said, the character work in that last scene is really terrific and wonderful, and I, I applaud all of it. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that the actual story that they were telling with this two-parter is very much squandered in, in part two. Uh, very much so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it goes back to what I was saying before about how those elements are just disparate strands. They don't mix. And speaking of things that don't mix, let's tackle the giant fighting elephant in the room with the Slovene. Yeah, the Slovene, which I've got to say, just off the bat, the fact that they aren't, their their species isn't called the Slovene, but that's their surname and the actual species is Raxacorico Fallopatorians. It's cool. Like, say what you want. I think it's cool. And it it speaks to what I love so much about the Slovene at a concept level, is that they're not a homogenous race. They are trying to make them come across as individual beings in a family. And everything about their characterization, whilst it falls into very slapstick kind of territory, is an interesting depiction of alien life. You know, they, they're giggly, nervous aliens with baby faces who have keen sense of smell, hunting rituals. Like everything about their society is kind of there. It's just a shame, isn't it? Because I, I will say as as a as purely as a concept, the Slovene are fantastic i I really vibe with them i think they look really dopey and wonderful um you're right about like the whole hunting rituals and stuff there is a a genuine sinisterness to to what those aliens are and if the episode had decided to treat them seriously instead of treating them as essentially a prolonged fat farting joke Mm. i think you could have had a a threatening alien presence a totally consistent episode Basically what I'm saying is I think the comedy is what entirely undoes the story that these two episodes is trying to tell. Because when you have a, an episode called World War Three, and you're essentially dealing not just with the idea of a third world war, but also they, they reframe it as a conversation about, you know, can the Doctor keep Rose safe? These are all very big, serious ideas. And so when you intercut that with, like, you know, plotting and farting and... It, it just doesn't work. And the Slovene are the the main crux of why this whole story both doesn't work and is interesting in the first place. And mm. I am, I'm having a really hard time melding those two concepts. Well, it's interesting you say that it's what's wrong and also interesting with this episode. I hadn't considered it on that fact. Yeah. They are simultaneously treated as a serious threat, as an interesting threat, and also as a joke. And I think that comes down to, in my personal view, I mean, we, we don't know what the actual intentions of the of the scriptwriter was of the director how much control either one of those people had over the final product but to my mind it seems like there was a hesitation to go to there was a hesitation to not because doctor who they de- is to a lot of people's minds a kid show and so i feel like they don't want to not have those elements in it they want to have comedy aliens for quote unquote the kids but at the same time, it's frustrating because so much of it does come down to the fact that, like, I, I don't think it's, it's particularly a hot take to say that 
as a even unintentional commentary on on fat people this episode is kind of profoundly uncomfortable and so treating the alien threat that is meant to be driving a dramatic plot as an excuse to essentially just bash on larger people. Um, I find that to be, I, I don't want to use the word offensive. There's a lot of loaded language that we could and couldn't use about how we discuss our, our pop culture and, and media. And obviously it's a product of 2005. You've got Rose, you know, saying, Oh, that's so gay and whatnot. Like I, I get it. But at the same time, watching it in, in 2020, there is, an undeniable element of these two episodes that just thinks it's funny to have fat people farting. And if you're going to introduce something like that, it makes it very difficult for me to take seriously any sort of political commentary that you're trying to do about weapons of mass destruction or, you know, believing the lies of the government or anything like that, that the episode is very clearly also trying to do. But I think in trying to do both, um, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And I, I just find it uh, endlessly frustrating. It is frustrating, especially when you consider that the fact that they are fat doesn't add anything to the plot. And no. I mean, there's that line of dialogue, right? That they have the little device around their neck that makes them s- slim down into the human skins that they're wearing. Yeah. It would have taken a simple change of dialogue to say that the device can put them inside any human being. Exactly right. If you're already making up, like, it, I mean, it's it's science fiction, you know, you're already making up absurd reasons to have anything happening. So to say like, oh, we've got this device that makes them fit into human bodies, but only fat human bodies so that they can make farting noises. It's just, mm. I, I can't help but view it as a very deliberate choice. Um, and I understand that maybe like he, like Russell T Davies or whoever sort of came up with this concept, probably considered it very funny. I found it very funny at 14 years old, but he, like they are not 14 year olds making this show. And, uh, yeah, it is. uh, Yeah. It is profoundly uncomfortable if you're watching it and watching Dr. Who for, uh, escapism or for its fun whatever the case may be, and to see that depiction if you are yourself overweight or struggling with weight or um, men- even mental issues around surrounding, you know, body image. Body image, exactly. It, 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 yeah, it really... Yeah, and it's the, it's, the, it's the same blind spot that also informs what they do with Mickey in this episode because he's either treated as a goof who, who runs into fences and gets alien goop thrown into his face and all that sort of dumb crap, but then at the same time, you've also got this like undercurrent of, you know, he's been questioned by the police for the last 12 months and assumed to be like a, he's a murder suspect. And the, the show has all these odd little spots where perhaps a more considerate uh, team behind it would have noted, hey, there is some unintentional racial commentary in here or, hey, we're, we're, we are essentially just making a, a two hour long fat joke here. And mm. I know that it, it's interesting because we kind of defended um, The Unquiet Dead last week uh, against the claims of, you know, sort of somebody watches that episode and reads into a commentary on immigration politics. And, and you know, I, I like to think that we we made sure that you guys understood, uh, that you folks understood that how you interpret media is how you interpret media. We're not trying to change any of that. Obviously, we, we clearly have our own interpretations of, of this week's episode. And that there's just these little potholes that in this episode especially have become quite pronounced. And it's it's just something that I can't not bring up on, on our podcast about Doctor Who. Like we <laughs> created this so that we'd have a platform to talk about things through 
a slightly different lens, perhaps like whether that be through a queer lens or a body positivity lens or a socially conscious lens, whatever it is. Mm. And there's a lot of stuff in this two-parter that really raises some red flags for me. And I know that we've spent a lot of time on it uh, today and I hope we haven't alienated anybody by doing that, but it, it's something that I, I personally just couldn't ignore. I don't, I can't speak for you, James, but I, for one, have definitely still, like I still struggle with my own body image and the way that I look and, mm. and yeah, to see the, this depiction it doesn't make me feel good in the bluntest of terms. The one silver lining to it is that we get Annette Badland as the best Slovene, as Blonde Felfoch Pasimir Day Slovene. I do vibe with her performance. I think she's definitely the most creepy of the th- main three. Mm. Look, I... <sighs> You obviously don't agree. <laughs> I, I I can't agree. No offense to um, Annette Badland. I, I do think that she she is definitely clued into the performance that uh, they wanted her to give. I, I I don't deny that. I think that she delivered them exactly what they wanted. And in that regard, yeah, very good performance. Uh, but I do find her to be the least creepy of any of them because she is just cartoonishly um, sinister and. It, it doesn't lend itself to any sort of um, genuine feeling from me. I definitely disagree. I think she's got the most gravitas of them all. I mean, like, especially that scene, that standoff she has with Chris Freckleston, where she's talking about their plot to sell off the earth, to, like, reduce it to bits and just sell it to the highest bidder. The way that the lines come out of her mouth and they're just like dripping with menace. She's so good. And I, I know I am thinking about a future episode where she appears, where this is capitalized on, but it's, it is here still. And I think, yeah, look, I, it's interesting. Cause I guess I don't think about those scenes when I think about her performance in this episode. And that's, I, I don't personally consider that to be my fault. I think the episode primarily positions her as a comedic horror element because you're right like when when she is allowed to be a little bit more sinister and this goes for all three of the performances um of the the three main slovenes i think when they're allowed to not be a joke they are genuinely um creepy and and unsettling and like in scenes with the hunting and and all that sort of stuff like you know once you get past the let me kiss you with my big green lips (laughs) like when once you move past that dumb stuff uh when you get into the way that they they can smell their prey and all that those little details that do make the slovene and those performances very sinister i just wish the episode had allowed them to explore that element a little bit more than the the stuff that we've just gone over with the farting when you say it like that i actually i hear i hear it and what the reason they, I guess her character was brought back later was because of what the producers saw behind the scenes as opposed to what's actually on display in this episode. Maybe the most frustrating thing other than the horror elements that should work and occasionally do work is that there is an inherent comedy to the Slovenes outside of the farting and fat jokes that is genuinely funny. Like when you've got like all of them gathered around the phone, like ring damn it. And, <laughs> uh, you know, he's trying to make them, he's trying to, the doctor is trying to convince them that he can make a little bomb out of the, the bottle of alcohol. And, you know, the scene goes on for a few minutes with him, you know, up with that ruse going on and the the lead slovene is like um uh, how exactly does this work like there is good comedy writing in there it's just it gets really bogged down in the dumb comedy writing and i just find that again it's just another it's another frustration of an episode that to me is always peeking over the edge of like really good and then just gets pulled back down into the muck it it, that is a good scene and 
it also is a perfect transition point to the other major element of this episode, which is um, the supporting character of Harriet Jones. I love the line, and it's it. I'm not the only one. Everyone who's watched these episodes picks up on this. I love the line where <laughs> he passes the the what is it rum or port? He passes the port to Harriet Jones, and she just says, "You pass it to the left first. What does that mean exactly? It's common. It's common courtesy. It's a it's a it's a custom that you pass the port around the table from your left first. And it speaks obviously to her character, which uh, is very twee, charming and a very good performance, but like twee. I was surprised at how little there really is to her character rewatching this. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Because like the, the meme, the joke of Harriet Jones, MP for Frydale North, Fly... Fly... <laughs> Flydale North. Flydale North. So yeah, because the meme of Harriet Jones, MP for Flydale North, is it is embedded into my mind from when I was a teenager. Like I, I definitely loved her quite a bit at the time. But you're right. Coming back to this episode, she's just kind of she's kind of buzzes around a little bit, and um, it- there isn't really a lot to say on her character on re uh, rewatching this. Um, other than that, it's a great performance from Penelope Wilton, but there's just so many elements to her character that are not in the slightest interesting. Like you say, like there's a lot, there's a concerted effort to give, to make her a comedy character and give her these, like to play up the comedy of her Britishness and the, her politeness and the traditions that, you know, she's obviously steeped in, but it's just not very funny. I don't know. Maybe that's <laughs> just me, but it's just, yeah. Uh, no, I think she's more charming than like sort of laugh out loud funny. Yeah. Uh, Cause you're right. Like Penelope Wilton, crushes it she she does such a good job like she's immediately likable it's just a little bit un, underbaked yeah the only point of action that harriet jones gets really is the the very end of the episode where she commands the doctor to to nuke 10 downing street which let's talk about that for a bit let's talk about that for a bit because i know i touched on this earlier when i got <laughs> quite frustrated with the ending of um of this main plot but the idea that they just casually launch a missile at 10 Downing Street and, well, first of all... From, that, a, from a home computer. <laughs> from a home computer. Yeah, exactly right. It's very it, it's very hackers. It's, uh, I don't know, it, it's... I imagine it would have been quite charming at the time. And I am glad that Mickey gets something to do, even if he is insulted the entire time it's happening as well. Um, but what I, I find interesting is that you've got Harriet Jones in the room for some reason who's getting to make these sort of big calls she gets that moment where the doctor and Rose and Jackie are on that three-way phone call and they're you know oh it's not up to you it's not up to you and then for some reason Harriet Jones decides oh it's up to me and Mm. I just, it's not a choice that I think the doctor would necessarily take seriously. Like she says, you know, just, oh, launch the missile. And he just grins like an idiot. Isn't that just so frustrating when you consider that that decision was, is preempted by Jackie imploring the doctor to not bring her daughter into harm's way. Essentially, don't risk my daughter's life. Don't kill my daughter to save the world. That's the crux of the doctor's dilemma. And yet Mm. Harriet makes... Harriet makes that call and the doctor just goes, all right, let's do it. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's odd because you you do get that moment between Jackie and uh, Harriet where she says, and and who's this then? Mm. And it's strange that the episode, uh, the episode I'd say has a lot of love for Harriet Jones in 
And it's interesting pairing that with its disdain, well, apparent disdain, let's say, for the working class, because then you get Harriet Jones coming in, who's very obviously upper middle class. And so the episode pivots to her for the the crucial sort of plot and emotional decision of the episode with no real indication of why we should be considering her to be a voice of authority in this situation. I just think it's very muddled about, again, pairing silly elements with serious elements. It's just, it's another example of this episode not getting it right. Yeah, I guess, yeah. The word ignorant is very loaded, but it is ignorant of those very real truths. um, Yeah. For sure. And it's a shame because I think the political dimension to this episode is very interesting, very topical in a way that Doctor Who's never been. It doesn't go too hard into it, um, which is probably a good thing in the long run, but it is there if you choose to see it. Um, and there's so much, there's so many aspects of this episode that I do vibe with. Um, the very corporate, uh, capitalistic nature of the Slovene is, and how evil that is, uh, brilliant, great, easy messaging. The duplicitousness of politicians and the police as well, like the fact that we cannot trust our elected officials and law enforcers like is so spot on and yet i mean until until there's an upper middle class white woman who comes in to be the trusted one well yeah exactly well i I think again it's just it's really muddled messaging about it's it's both anti-authority and like very it it seems very pro-military at times with the way that the doctor commands that squad in the hospital Mm. uh that that's very much played as a well he's just a natural leader of men with guns you know and there's no and and that stuff paired with the harriet jones stuff there's just very little self-awareness about the fact that it is playing in both playgrounds essentially of being pro and anti-government military forces and i think that confusion does play out on screen absolutely and if I can, it, it's all, I, I guess it's less anti-politicians and more anti-corruption because the show, and I think Russell T Davies as well, like is simultaneously critical of politics and positive towards Britain and Britishness. You do get that incongruence. I, I can't help but um, like compare it with a future episode that's just come, well, not a 2018 episode, Kablam, where you have the Doctor defending the system rather defending the system but the criticizing the people that are in it and without make, putting making too much of a point of it um that is somewhat of what's on display here do you agree um i i'm, I'm honestly not sure how i feel about that because we don't get the opportunity to have a critical look at corrupted leaders because they are fat fighting aliens like they're not actual yeah people with corruption problems it's just um it's it's very lazy visual shorthand to be like oh the the bloated fat politician is the evil one like i'm, I'm not a huge fan of kablam i think kablam's ultimate message about uh you know uh, people aren't the problem like systems aren't the problem people who abuse systems are the problem and i think that that is a much more nuanced take than that episode nails and in this episode I, I don't necessarily get the impression that it's it's pro system or or not. I uh, I'm just not sure what to take away from what they're trying to say with these two episodes, and I, I think that that is indicative of a problem with the writing. Yeah, for sure. There's a political like I think I said this previously. There's a political dimension, but if you don't choose to see it, then you won't misunderstand anything about the episode at the same time. 
on. No, it, it doesn't. But at the same time, you've also got like there, there was a, a line of dialogue in one of the news reports that, you know, people are being attacked in the streets because uh, people think that they're aliens. Yeah. And that was... you get little throwaway bits like that that are very, very explicitly dark political statements. But the show doesn't, because it doesn't commit to anything fully, because, you know, the aliens have to be both sinister and funny, because the Doctor and Rose have to be both on a rollicking adventure and on an introspective one about the keeping her safe, and because the world is simultaneously taking this very seriously and having hate crimes in the street, Mm. but also having the working class have, you know, silly conversations while the TV's on in the background. It just all is so muddled and the end result is a a couple of episodes that I think I feel nothing about them because it's not sure what it wants me to feel. I agree. And this isn't a defense, but I will say that that the weaving of commentary and plot does get better moving forward. Mm, definitely like i i know that there are much better stories to come um even in russell t davies's own little era like i know that this this isn't necessarily indicative of the kind of quality of writing that we're going to be getting from now on but i do think that there are issues in these two episodes that are taken through all the way up to chibnall's era where this is the first time that this kind of not juvenile but very now, maybe slightly juvenile sort of interpretation of what a big story should look like and sound like and, and tackle. Um, and those issues just rear their head over and over again in, in, in every single era. And it's just interesting seeing that this is the first time it happened and it's so early in the run. Yeah, that position is, it, it is unfortunate. And I fear would have turned off a lot of people at the time as well. Well, these weren't received particularly well, were they? No. No, not even when they were broadcast. The great thing, though, is that, um, and you, listener, will be aware of this, is that next week is Dalek. Oh, next week. <laughs> Good Lord. I am so ready to talk about Dalek. Yeah, because I watched Dalek right before I did my recent Clara rewatch, and so that one's very fresh in my brain. And again, speaks to that issue with Rose, because the Rose that we get in Dalek, and obviously we'll get to this next week, I'm not trying to get ahead of myself, but that Rose is, is she's mature, she has agency, it's all working again in harmony the same way it was across the past two episodes. And so to have this little dip in the middle where everything seems to take a bit of a nosedive has just been a really disappointing week. And I'm sorry if it's come Mm. across as a a negative episode for uh, the listeners, but it's just how I feel about it. I still think there's a lot of good in this episode, these two episodes. I think that there's a lot, there's a a lot of refreshing elements in the way that it it is grounded on earth, in the way that it's willing to tackle topics that wouldn't have been tackled in the past. It doesn't land, it doesn't land it. It absolutely doesn't. And, um, but, you know, it's not a complete failure. No, no, I, I agree. And, and look, let's 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 pivot into what we do like about this episode because there there are a lot of things in here that I do love, uh, and so I think it'd be good if maybe we wrap things up on a bit more of a positive note than we've been having. Yeah, definitely. I think that one of the positives that it's a, it's a small thing, but I really love. I think Chris Eccleston in this episode is. Um, as you said previously, he's a very traditional doctor. I like seeing him kind of juggle all these different elements in uh, a, on his own. Um, you have the the scene with him at Albion Hospital, which will come up later for those who don't know. Um, I'm those who don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Oh, okay, then that that actually worked. Then um, <laughs> um, you see him like 
I love the moment when he shushes his sonic screwdriver, for instance, when he's investigating. I love mm. the moment when he yells at the guard for, you know, shooting the pig down and his sympathy with... Oh, the pig alien was such a heartbreaking sequence. You want to talk about stuff that does work in this episode. That whole segment in the hospital when it's just the doctor off on his own journey is a really effective little story. I mean, like the, the military stuff aside, um, the way that that alien... One, it looks fantastic. It's a really great looking physical puppet or, or suit or whatever it is. Uh, the way that it it has genuine fear and it, I don't know, you get like babe sense, like uh, sensibilities yeah. coming through where you can't help but just really sympathize with what that poor creature had to go through. And I like that the episode does slow down enough to have the doctor have two or three separate scenes dedicated to the fact that what the Slovenes have done to this thing is so cruel and horrible. And it's a really good showcase for the doctor's sympathies and, and the warmer parts of his heart that we don't get to see as much throughout the rest of this episode. Absolutely. And also his sympathies with any creature, no matter where they're from, you know, no matter their intelligence, whatever. Well, unless you're Mickey, apparently. Yeah. Well, the way he treats Mickey, it's not great. And I know that we're trying to po- focus on positives here, but I... Yes, I sorry, I, I could not help myself. <laughs> I, I missed the, on first watch the line when he says to Mickey, you know, you you were born in the dark or something like that. And that's just such an unnecessarily mean thing to say. Um, it is. I hate the kind of machismo that they inject, inject into the Doctor where he has this like jealous reaction to any of his companions Yes, it really smacks of uh, Matt Smith and uh, I don't know the actor's name, Rory, though, like their their dynamic. It's just like, oh, okay, we're doing this angle of the story. And to see that come from a, a queer writer is especially disappointing. It's it's too easy. It's an easy, like, plot uh, yeah. thing to write rather than... There's no thought, I think, behind it. And it is what it is. Um, it is. On the plus side though, with the doctor and Mickey, we do get that really great scene at the end of the episode where they're having the conversation about, you know, Mickey's too afraid essentially to go on this journey. And, and again, though, this does play into the whole machismo thing, but just in a, in a slightly different way of having, you know, the doctor pretends like, Oh, I don't want him here so that he can cover for Mickey expressing his emotions. Yeah. Like let's take the, the, the um, masculinity element out of it. And it is just a very kind act of the doctor to do that. We haven't seen him previously do like it's itself. It's not, it's selfless in a way. It's nice. I will say that whole ending bit from the moment that 10 Downing street blows up and we cut back. (laughs) I I can't believe I'm saying that sentence. Um, (laughs) Like to, when we go back to Rose, Oh my God, the hug that Rose and Jackie have once it's all over, like she needed that hug. She really did. She She did. I'm glad that they do pull it up out of the tailspin for Jackie's characterization by the end, because you're right. That entire end exchange between the two of them about, you know, Jackie cooking dinner and uh, Rose packing the bag and like she, she, oh, it broke my heart when she bought out the second cup of tea for her and she'd already run off to her room to pack. I was like, no, Jackie. And it, it, Again, like this is this is what is so successful about this episode is it considers, it does consider the implications, maybe not the implications of what happens when the Doctor walks away, but what happens to the people that his companions leave behind. Mm. Uh, the unfortunate, like the, the whole episode, um, you know, hinges on the fact that they've arrived 12 months later, right? Which has this whole different emotional dimension to the episode, which we've never seen before. 
And that's quite a big kind of concept. But when you bring it right down to a very domestic, a very small scale, it it sings. It just sings. And that line where Jackie says, you know, please don't go. Oh, God. <laughs> it's just... I know. It's so heartbreaking. And that really good, uh, like, summation of the episode's... Um, you know, core idea. Cause it, it is there when Rose says to her, you know, Oh, it's, it's a time machine. Like I'll be back in 10 seconds. Oh. And then Jackie waits for 10 seconds and it's just the longest, most painful 10 seconds. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And I also think it's telling that at the end of that scene, you've got like Mickey, just, he goes back to sitting on that barrel with his newspaper and like he, he takes up his watch again. Yeah. And, and that's, really unfortunate for Mickey. And it goes back to what we were saying about why are these two characters together? I do feel like there is an element of like, have some self-respect, man. Uh, yeah. I didn't pick up on that, but yeah, now that you said it, it, I can see that, especially with the two of them. It's so funny because you see Mickey and Jackie come together in this episode, but the last image of the episode is them walking away from one another. Like, yeah, but they, they go back to their respective posts. That's it. You know, that's it. They, that's, a, that's absolutely right. Um, but it is, I think, a good illustration of what of the one sort of successful blending of plots that we have in this episode, which is, and we touched on it briefly, but didn't really go into it in too much detail, which is that the Doctor has never been accountable to another human being for the safety of anyone before. And Jackie's desperation at the, at the end with Rose, like, to not go is, you know, obviously grounded in a fear for her daughter's safety. Mm. But it is a very different thing when it's also the doctor having to consider that for the first time. Um, it, it is. It's interesting that the episode, while dealing, like you said, dealing with that question for the first time in a very explicit way, but by doing that, it completely sidesteps that Rose has a choice and has agency and she is the one choosing to leave them. It's not the doctor taking her. Mm. She is saying to them at any given moment, you know, he like, like she says to Mickey, she says to her boyfriend, he's so much more important than a boyfriend. I know. You know? She's essentially saying to her mother that, like, you know, if you'd seen the things that I've seen, you'd, you'd never stay home. And, and again, this is all very understandable motivations. I think for a 19-year-old, 100%, this is, this is good stuff. It's just that because the episode never examines that Rose is the one making these decisions, it shifts the responsibility and the onus of her actions onto the Doctor without doing any of the actual sort of legwork to make it feel like that is what it should be doing. Yeah, it's almost treating it as a very natural decision, but I've yet to sort of see why that would be the case. In Rose, there's a sense of adventure and fun and it's setting up this story. And so for her to run away with the Doctor makes sense. For it to be a very rash decision also makes sense. But uh, I don't know, there's just, in, in these two episodes alone, there's a part of me that just sort of thinks, why would you go away? Why would you just, why would you leave now? Why wouldn't you just stay? a bit longer yeah do you know what i mean yeah, and if I, it weren't for the I, if it weren't for the doctor saying i'm leaving and i'm leaving and if you don't come with me now then that's it well that's the other thing like in the last what two minutes you actually do get an example of the doctor not forcing her to go but forcing her hand about whether she's going to go on yeah right because that's done in the last two minutes, there's no examination of that. You don't get to spend any time marinating in, in what he chooses to do in that moment. Uh, and so it, it's all just, again, the episode's priorities are just a bit out of whack. And, and it's frustrating because I think as we've sort of found over this last 20 minutes or so, when it works, it's really fantastic. All the pieces are on the board. They're just played the wrong way. That's absolutely right. And I think that's also a good summing up 
of these two episodes. Yeah, I think that kind of brings us to the end of Aliens of London and World War Three. Uh, again, I am sorry if this came off as, as uh, too critical. It, it's just, we're not just here to exclusively focus on what we love. Sometimes this show doesn't work. Sometimes it does make mistakes and we need to understand how and why those things happen to sort of better equip ourselves going into the future with it. Absolutely. And I think the fact that you and I are both still watching the show now uh, means that mm. we're not, we don't hate the show. Oh, Lord, no, no. I cannot tell you how excited I am for Dalek. I am so ready to to watch it, to talk about it, to pull that whole thing apart. It's going to be a great episode next week. I, I really hope you folks in, enjoy hmm. us getting back to something that we that we love. <laughs> yeah. It's no secret that Dalek is an exceptional episode, um, so we're very keen to discuss it. We are. We are. But before we wrap up, as always, we are going to grade these two episodes. Uh, do you want to grade them? We'll do them separately. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, you, yep. Yes. Oof. Okay. Aliens of London. I would give a give it a B, and then uh, World War Three, like a B minus, but it is slipping into a C plus. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, I'm going to give Aliens of London a C plus, and I'm going to give World War Three a C minus. Mm, good. Mm. Good. <laughs> good. 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 <laughs> I think it's no secret that I love this this particular era of the show so much. Like, I will be marginally more sympathetic than maybe is necessary. And look, that's totally fair. Just you wait till we get to the uh, the Clara stuff. And then every week I'm like, A+, plus, A+, plus, A+. Plus. <laughs> oh, bent, A++. Plus, plus. Oh, God. It's almost, like, it's almost like too far in the distance that I can imagine it's never going to happen. But... <laughs> well, we'll get there. We'll get there. The long way round. Great. So that was Aliens of London and World War Three. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed yeah, the discussion. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you want to reach out to us with some intricate thoughts, feel free to email us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two spelt out as the word. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at twoheartspod. That two is the number two. And of course, if you like the show and you like what you're hearing from us, please subscribe on on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Podcast Addict, whatever it is that you're listening to us on right now, hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And of course, if you wouldn't mind, uh, a five-star review never goes astray. So that would be really fantastic. Uh, as always, we'd love to hear from you guys. If you have input or feedback or thoughts on, on Dalek or whatever it is, just reach out. We're always happy to have a chat. Absolutely. Um, and if you disagree with anything we've said as well, please feel free to contact us because uh, I think as evidence in these podcasts, this podcast so far, we love a good argument. Uh, yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. We don't just want to hear our own opinions echoed back at us. So feel free to email us and tell us how the fighting Slovenes are actually comedy gold. Whatever floats your boat. I'd be really interested to know if somebody has that opinion out there. Oh, that'd be funny. So would I. But for this week, I have been James. You can reach out to me on Twitter at, at @omgmorejames, And I have been CJ, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CJMcLean underscore. And until next week, as always, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time for Dalek. Dalek.